And everybody has the opportunity to make the choice of where they're, where they're going. And it doesn't mean that you don't love one another. The one thing like I'm going to tell, tell you is that there's going to be segregation. There's going to be segregation until in the church and in the world, you're going to have segregation until the Lord comes. Welcome back to our podcast, Unmuted with Destiny and Sam. Today is what? One of our second recording with a special guest? Yeah, we have a guest today. Ooh, look at us having guests. I don't guests. know how special, but I'm a guest. You are special. Yeah. <laughs> Any guest is special. That's why we invited you to talk about stuff. Right. Um, but before we get into our topic... I just want to say, you know, Sam, we have consistent listeners in Spain and Ireland and really? Kuwait. Do yeah. you know them personally? No, I don't. That's why I want to mention it here. Whoever you are, raise your hand. Send us a message somewhere in Ireland, Kuwait or Spain. Who are these people? Wow. I don't know, but I guess we're international. We are. And then uh, you're Jamaican people as well thank you thank you guys for listening to us yeah but we just appreciate your support and your continued downloads of the episodes and we're just waiting to hear a little bit more feedback but also remember to download subscribe and leave a review wherever you like to listen to your podcast um so, how was y'all's weeks? And well, before we go there, guest, what is your name? My name is Marilyn. I'm generally known as Sister Marilyn. And uh, of course, I'm here from Plant City. And I'm going to be talking a little bit today about some of the struggles that the African Americans had um, in the early pioneer days, as well as the not so pioneer days. All right. <laughs> well, how was your week, Sam? My week. Oh, man. I'm in nursing school. I don't know how our week can be, but overloaded with work and stuff. Um, This week, I don't know. It was a struggle for me with some of my tests. Well, all of my tests. <laughs> with technology. Mm-hmm. From doing the tests, just being frustrated overall and tired. But at the end of it all... All I could write about this week was that thank you, God, for bringing me through. So I'm grateful, you know, for getting through yet another week. We're going into week 10. So week 16 is looking closer and closer. (laughs) (laughs) You've almost finished your first semester. Semester, Yeah. Well, I know you're doing well. And your teachers know you're doing well. Yeah. So hang in there and and keep going but what was one thing how you saw god moving in your life this week i mean i could i could just say in every way but um okay can we talk about the 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 grammy stuff let's talk about that 66 i got 
that was like a downturn like i was really at an a with my gpa for that course mm-hmm. and that 66 really brought it down to uh 84 Anyway, before the day closed off, she gave all of us 10 points, which pushed me back closer to the A mark. And I can say, oh, who could that be <laughs> but God? Because God knows we needed, um, you know, th- those marks. But honestly, it's really just seeing him um, unfolding all these ways, especially when it comes to these tests, because the concept, they're so new. It's nothing like when you when you do regular multiple choice or anything. It's really clinical reasoning and application and all of that is new. Thinking from a nursing point of view, it's it's totally new. Not what the doctors think, not what a physical therapist think, not what any other profession think, but what would the nursing um what would the nurses do in those cases? It can be tricky sometimes. So yeah. And when they drop the lowest score, you really see the Lord working. Right? (laughs) (laughs) Definitely, definitely. And it's always good because there are times when they will, like when they go back over and they do analysis. um, So far, it's been working in my favor where I've always like maybe got another two points or four points, you know, making it back into the B line or somewhere off the start. So it's always good to see those margins going closer to a than you know to the brc's mm-hmm. yeah well i'd also like to add that sister marilyn is my great aunt which i don't know why she failed to failed to say that in her uh introduction but i figured you would bring up the rear at <laughs> <laughs> least something for you to do <laughs> nah how how did you see god working in your life this week well, um, I have to take a medication, and since I'm retired now, um, it was just a few dollars when I was working, and it turned out to be several hundred when I'm not working. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I didn't qualify to get it free, so I got another medicine, and at least it's affordable. So I know God was working, I think, because I, unfortunately, right now I have to take it. Yeah. But at least I was able to get it because I had gone a month without even having it. It was just so that's good all right what Um, about you um oh this week i took a test a very important test um that i pretty much neglected all other studies for this test um the florida general knowledge test I was as a part of your teaching certificate. Now, I'm not studying to be a teacher, but my degree is coming from the College of Education. So I had to pass the general knowledge test before the end of my first semester. And there are four sections, the essay, math, uh, English language skills and uh, reading. And, you know, I passed three sections. I mean, you know, they still have to grade the essay because everything is computer based, but somebody still got to read the essay. But either way, I believe she'll pass the essay. (laughs) She's a good writer. So that's the last part. You got two parts still have you got three done and Mm -hmm. there are two more parts, the essay and what? No, 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 those are four sections. Okay, Um, great. But they give you a printout of whether you passed or fail since it's a computer based test. So I passed the three sections that were all multiple choice. 
And, and you're a natural born writer. So right. You know I mean? so. <laughs> but no like someone like me, I'll be worried or shaking in my shoes but, right now. But my degree is in creative writing. It don't Grammar isn't really write. my thing. And I, I got to tell you, I didn't study probably as much as I should have for this test. Like next to none. So it's really like, um, that's God with this test. Because I have been kind of doubtful about whether or not I should stay in the program or whether I made the right choice. Um, you know, now you got in, affirmation that yeah, you're it's counselor education. Um, so basically, to be a school counselor, and I feel like this is confirmation because I really didn't do anything, and I know I guessed on like. A good 10 questions in the math section and there's only 40 <laughs> 40 questions <laughs> like there's there's this one section i'm pretty i'm okay in like geometry and stuff like that but then we got to the calculus the stuff? we got to the calculus section and they're like talking about functions and i made yeah, i made I made C's in, in analysis of functions in high school. So that wasn't my math. So it, that was a good 10 questions. And then the last portion of the reading section, um, I'm, I'm good at reading and reading comprehension and all that, but it takes me a while to read. So I'm, I'm a bit slow and I didn't get to read the last passage. So I just guessed on those last eight questions as well with two minutes left on the clock. So it's, it's just, the it Lord. was God. You yes. know, it was God. <laughs> <laughs> you say, Glory. Hallelujah. Yeah, right. Yeah. I didn't, I definitely didn't, um, was not completely adequately prepared, but that's behind me. I think that's the last major test I'll have to take going forward and moving forward in a career so just keep us all in your prayers <laughs> too bad it's not mine <laughs> <laughs> i mean you you're used to taking tests though you're good at it i feel like you take like three tests a week i'm not good <laughs> at test taking let's let's get this out there multiple choice freaks me out that's alone give us give me anxiety much less they we have this thing that we have to do it under called responders where they're watching us if you move a bit they're saying okay you need to come back to the screen like the camera just shifts in or everything so that just gives us anxiety <laughs> versus if we're just going in the class and just sitting and writing on the paper and doing our tests yeah nobody nobody yeah. watches me take my tests I, so. well they watched us they watched us take um this test you know because that's a state certification but um and you know one thing that really kind of saddened me didn't during the test you know people come in and out of the testing center um because the tests start you can pick different times to start the test. So maybe somebody um, is just at the beginning of their test and then the next person next to them is like on the third section of the test. But um, when it was time for my 15-minute uh, break, um, this, this other girl took a break as well, but it wasn't her scheduled break to take. But, you know, they can't hold you in there if you got to go to the bathroom or something. But it ended up that she went outside and you're not supposed to go outside during your um, non-scheduled break. And nobody told us this, but they would they didn't allow her to come in and finish her test because she went outside. 
but that was and it's just the way that the woman at the desk approached it as well she was kind of nasty but they didn't they didn't tell us that at the beginning um but anyway that was just a side note but i'm glad i didn't take no extra breaks right in general so when you say outside she went outside of yeah, where outside the, of the building. building yeah the like, building you yeah. can go in like in the hallway but you can't go outside the building yeah yeah so you could do it you could go outside on your schedule break but if it's a non-scheduled break then you can't go outside because i guess they say you could cheat or something well how many hours was it um the writing section was 50 minutes and then the English portion was 40 minutes and the reading section I think it was 55 minutes and the math was you got an hour and an hour and 30 minutes or something like that about four hours yeah it was about four and a half hours back in the day you didn't get breaks unless you probably just had an emergency hey so what happened um when Cause that would count as a fail for her, right? Yeah, she had to reschedule to take it again. Mm-hmm. So, how many times are you allowed to retake? You can it? take it as many times as you need to. Mm-hmm. Like each section, some people may pass one section and maybe not the other section. So you can just schedule to take individual session uh, sections as well. It doesn't have to be all at once. Like I could have just took one section on Thursday. I didn't have to take all I four think, of them. I think we only get three. Three shots at the NCLEX. Three. And that's mm-hmm. it. And even before the NCLEX, when it comes to the dosage calculation, which will happen next semester what's, for pharmacology. For pharmacology. No, what's in, in, whatever you just said. It's the board exams you have to take for your license oh. for um nursing. Mm-hmm. They You only get, I think it's two shots you get at that. And literally, if you don't, you have to have B's in all the courses to move on to another semester. Mm-hmm. So well, <laughs> it's literally well, just taking it a semester yeah, at a time. I, I have to get B's too. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> and a B's at 80. Is it 80 for you guys? Uh-huh. Yeah, that's a B. It's hard. But we're long, long away from your days of certification. <laughs> that's, that, that, that's, that's what I'm talking about. And, and, and tests and all that. But I think in your presentation today, you're going to have a little bit about schools. Um, if you've been listening to the podcast for the past few episodes, um, then you know that we have a series within the podcast called Teaching Sam Black History. So consider this as um, part two of, of that. And actually, this won't be as much uh, black history as per se it is of sorts, but we're going to really be talking about the black experience um and you know the black experience was full of drama confrontation and uh danger during um the start during the start of the the church listen to counsel receive instruction that you may be wise you may be wise in your latter days Listen to counsel, receive instruction 
that you may be wise. You may be wise in your latter days. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. Listen to counsel, receive instruction, that you may be wise. You may be wise in your latter days. Listen to counsel, receive instruction, that you may be wise. You may be wise in your latter days. So, as I was saying, we're going to talk about Black history, and as my aunt just said, it's going to be more of the Black experience, specifically in churches, specifically in our denomination, which is Seventh-day Adventist. Um, And she's also going to talk a little bit about segregation and integrating of schools just a little bit because she experienced it firsthand. So how often do you get to speak to someone about that experience? So you can start wherever you want to start and we'll ask questions or interject anything that we, we, we have. Yeah, but this is a full on history class. Okay. (laughs) I guess at first I started about a little bit about the segregation. Uh, We were in a segregated school and, you know, we were uh, well taught. The one thing about it, you notice, I I noticed that when uh, integration came, um, the school that's called now Marshall, uh, what is it called? It's a middle school, but it's a Marshall Middle Magnet. Yeah. Yeah, up the street. That was the high school and it housed seventh to twelfth grade. A black student? The black student. It was a black school housed in 7th through 12th grade. Sorry. And um, that's where I went. Um, I went out into the country when I was in, um, what, 6th and 7th grade. I went to the school in the country, which was called... um, uh, Glover School. And then I came up to Marshall and uh, I was in Marshall. I went to Marshall until 10th grade. And I remember in 10th grade, they were saying that, you know, at the end of our 10th grade year, they were saying like things like um, next year we'll be probably going to uh, Plant City High and uh, everybody's going to have to go to Plant City High. And I said, you got to be kidding. I really didn't believe them. But what I, what what's everybody what you the, it, it, all the all the kids from Marshall, the the high school kids from ninth through twelfth. At that time, Plant City was ninth through twelfth. The ninth through twelfth graders were going to have to be fused and go to uh, Plant City High, and and I, that was where all the white students were. Yeah, that was where all the white students were. And uh, we went to Plant City, so we went to uh, play, but that was in the, my tenth grade year. So come my eleventh grade year, guess where we were. Plant City. Plant City High. <laughs> and um, uh, I remember uh, I, when I was going to discuss, and I just mentioned this, uh, their, our pastor at that time was Doug Simons. 
And uh, we, I joined the Teens for Christ, and he consented. He was the speaker for the Teens of Christ, which I belong to. Um, I'm, I must say, you know, and I, and I did not realize this, but I heard a man, he saw me one day, and he said, uh, Marilyn Candace, the first black honor student from Plant City High. And I looked at him, and I said, uh, and I said, I guess he was right, because I was the only one there, so... <laughs> And um, I said, well, and I was the first to get a, the chemistry award from Plant City High. So I, I did a couple of firsts in Plant City. Mm-hmm. Okay. I, through God's help. As a, right. black, as a black woman, right? As a black person. Yeah. Um, also. You know, uh, wait, that, that's interesting because, you know, that happened all those, all those years ago. And you, we didn't have the first, what was it, valedict, black valedictorian until I was at, at Plant City High. And that was in 2009, I think she graduated, or 2008, one of them. And, man, it took that many years. I guess that many years. <laughs> what year was that? I graduated in 1971. Mm. Yeah. So, <laughs> so I wasn't even 30. Yeah, that was 30 some years. Yes, 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 yes. Man. Um, and so uh with that being said, then we're gonna go into uh the meat for today. Mm-hmm. A- as you know, when I you know, it's hard for me to figure out where in the world do I start. So I say maybe I'll start talking about Hazen Foss, uh, and uh talk about William Foy and um William Foy was a Millerite, and uh, in the beginning when the Millerite movement was, which is in the 1830s and 1840s, when they start saying that Jesus Christ was coming, and they misunderstood what the cleansing of the sanctuary was, so they thought actually he was coming in 1844, but that's not really what the um, uh, uh, Bible was really uh, explaining, but um, that's what they thought. Mm-hmm. The Millerites did. And the Millerites, William Foy, was a Millerite. He was a mulatto, and he could speak well. He was a tall man. And uh, he was given these visions in 1842. He was given two visions in 1842 and two visions in 1844. And he, unlike some, like Hazen Hayes Foss, he went and gave uh, the message, and God had called him to give a message at a certain time. And you would realize that uh, when he would give, um, there is a testimony by Dr. Henry Cummins, and it was very much like uh, the information that the same way in which Daniel was when you studied the Bible and which Ellen White was when you studied uh, the uh, appearance that she had when she was in vision. Dr. Henry Cummins said, I was present with our brother at the time of his visions. I examined him, but could not find any appearance of life except around the heart. And it was also in the case of Ella White, it mentioned that how they would put a piece of paper to her before her. They would put a candle before her. She would be talking, but no air, no movement. There was, she would be talking without mm-hmm. air. And so, so, um, so just clarify for our listeners, uh, you're saying William Foy was way back in the beginning of the church movement. Um, it was the Millerite. There, yeah. was, there wasn't a self Adventist yeah, church at that time. Yeah, there was no Adventist right now, but it all started with uh, the Millerites. And it was after a guy named William Miller 
who did some yeah who did some um some interpretation of prophecy that he kind of got a little wrong but we'll get to that at some point in (laughs) in the podcast if not this one here and ellen white the woman that she's talking about is um a prophet and she is also one of the founders of the church and she was also a millerite her and uh her family wasn't it her was it her whole family or just her oh i her family was just fellowship now i noticed that from what i can understand the family was but not all of them became seventh day adventists mm-hmm. Well, I mean, at Millerite, they were at the this Mil- point. They said they the Millerite all- family was this fellowship from the Methodist Church, and they said it was always said mm. the Millerite family. Okay. So her, so the her Millerite family. family was her family. All right, Sam, you're following us so far. Yeah, but what's the Millerite family? It's it's just the name. I mean, I like said the Millerite family. Have- I'm sorry, it was the Harmon family. <laughs> That's it was Ellen the White's, Harmon family. That's Ellen White. So it's name. just like her oh, your name is Candice. She was just, the, she her uh, yeah her maiden name okay. was Harmon, and okay. they uh, they espoused the Millerite, Millerite views, and of course they wouldn't recant, and so they were uh, disfellowship from the uh, Methodist Church. Yeah, okay. they were Methodist. They followed the Millerite movement, and the Methodist Church is like you got to go because you believe this. So. That, that's where we're at <laughs> but what uh, did they believe the seventh day adventist church was the largest uh church that came out of the millerite movement basically we were talking about the investigative judgment and uh message and uh, of course without any dates without because we, the dates of christ coming because we don't know the day of his coming and the thing about the millerites it seems the thing about the Millerites, it seems like they should have known not to give a date of yeah. saying it was Christ coming because the Bible clearly states right. nobody knows when Christ is mm-hmm. coming. So I'm wondering how they got to to thinking that, you know, they they would know when Christ was coming when it was very yeah. clear that nobody knew when he was coming. So based off of the text in, in Daniel what is it? Eight fourteen. Yes. Um, Until two thousand three hundred days, then shall the sanctuary yeah. be cleansed. They had a misunderstanding of what cleansing of the sanctuary yeah. meant. So William Miller in- interpreted that prophecy as to mean that Jesus would return in in eighteen forty four, and they had counted the um, the days and in the years and it would be in that year of 1844 but really what it was instead of the t- the coming of Christ it was Christ um becoming our high priest moving from the holy place or moving from the holy place in the sanctuary to the most holy place to intercede for us that makes sense am i correct yes ma'am all right so are we kind of caught up so who so made we'll, that? We'll, we'll have a, a discussion of the 2300 day prophets. That's a whole podcast all to itself. Right. <laughs> yeah. What were you going to ask? No, maybe it's that. But I was going to ask because I remember when we were growing up, they say Jesus was going to come in 2000. Mm. <laughs> Do we all know who made that blunder? Everybody's always putting yeah. dates. Okay. Somebody's always putting dates out okay. there. And, and, and I'm here to say to you, just stop putting yeah. out dates. We do not know. And Christ is not going to tell us. It's just when he comes, let's all be ready. Okay. 
<laughs> he said he's going his come is going to be like a thief in the night when you don't expect him he's going to be coming mm-hmm. so let's be prepared and wait for his coming so now we're at william foy who was a black man well he was mixed mulatto <laughs> and um so he gave the message and so he gave the message for the time in which he was to be to give the message the prophet uh god always has a prophet as a certain time to give a certain message so he gave the message that god gave him to uh give the interesting thing is that the uh gift was also given to hazen foss which happened to be the brother-in-law i think of sister white now he actually refused to give uh, the uh, vision, the visions that he was given from mm-hmm. God, because every time when God gave him the visions, they, he was giving them really the same line of visions. He absolutely refused it, and uh, just God just gave him opportunity, and he didn't. He did not. He just absolutely refused. You know, and you you can understand their feelings because you know even today somebody said a, a prophet, and people be looking at you kind of funny. Say, yeah, right. You know, and like. Like Jonah? Yeah. Yeah. You know, you say, yeah, you're right. You're a prophet. You're a prophetess. Yeah, right. And so, you know, people are still that way today. And so you feel, I, I don't want to give that. Uh-uh. I don't want to do that. I want people laughing and talking about me because that's just what people will do. And so um, because he refused and so uh, he got God said, because you refuse to give the visions, I would give it to the weakest of the weak. And Hazen Foss um, realized that he was, um, that that he had lost favor with God. And when he saw that the vision he had was then given to Ellen, which was a very weak person. And uh, she had sustained at nine years old, she had had an incident where someone hit her with a rock. She was unconscious for three weeks. She had to stop school. And so when God said, give it to the weakest of the weak, because she would end up having fainting spells. She was a very weak girl. She was uh, frail. And he really meant that. And there was a time when she was up there speaking and she was she wasn't feeling well. And people could see she wasn't feeling well. But all of a sudden they saw her get healed right before them. And the interesting thing about it was after she finished speaking and she sat down, she got right back tired. But while she was up there Mm -hmm. speaking on God's behalf, he healed her. There was a wonderful things about her. And, and uh, there was a time, Oh, I, we, we're not getting, I get off on her and then I, I'll be the rest of the composite. I'm sorry. <laughs> okay. And, but uh, Hazen Foss told her, he said, listen, this is the word of God and say, his spirit has gone for me. He never had any interest in spiritual things after that. But he said, mm. I'm telling you, this is the work of God. And he said, don't delay, don't bother, do what he asks you to do. And, you know, she felt that same way. And when God will tell her things that people would do that nobody else know they were doing, she hated to have to go tell them about these things, personal things in their lives. But she knew she had to do that. Mm-hmm. So um, that's what she had to face. Going off to uh, Arthur William Foy, uh, we'll go and talk a little bit about the Civil War. Now, uh, regarding the Civil War, uh, you when you, in your history books, you're going to find out when they talk about the Battle of Bull Run, uh, the Battle of Manassas, you're going to find out that people just thought at that first battle that the 
that was held. Uh, the Civil War started, uh, what was it, April of 1861. And so the Battle of Bull Run, I think, was around June. See, they really thought that the that the uh, the North thought that they were going to just vanquish the South in a few months or so, and they didn't expect it to last a long time. However, God was punishing the uh, South for the high crime of slavery, and He punished the North for allowing slavery to persist. Now, Sister White had a vision uh, on January the. Uh, 12, 1861, regarding the, um, let me see, make certain that was the correct date. It was, um, yeah, January 12th. January 12th, she had a vision regarding the Civil War vision. And um, at that time, everybody knew that South Carolina had succeeded from the Union because they had succeeded in December the 20th, 1860, which is about 20-something right. days prior. Hold, hold on right there, Sam. Because Sam don't know, don't know history like that either. But, you know, the American Civil War, right? A little bit. What do you know the main issue that was the Civil War? Slavery is the main thing. Um, and so when she say, um, that, uh, one of the, whichever Carolina you just South said, Carolina, South Carolina seceded from the union. That means that they, they, um, were no longer considered themselves to being a part of the United States mm. as all the Southern states would, because they want to keep the slaves. Right. So, uh, continue. All they, right. South Carolina wanted to keep the slaves or, uh, uh-huh. okay. because, yeah. and then January the, the 9th, Mississippi seceded January the 10th, Florida seceded January the 11th, Alabama seceded. And then she had her vision on January the 12th. So see, they probably didn't know about the other sessions because they had nine, 10, 11, and she was speaking on the 12th when she had this vision. So they probably only knew about South Carolina mm. seceding. They hadn't known about that. And so, what she said in the vision, she said, when she came from vision, uh, she said, there is not a person in this house who has even dreamed of the trouble that is coming upon this land. People are making sport of the secession ordinance of South Carolina. But I have just been shown that a large number of states are going to join that state and there will be a most terrible war now this was in january say in this vision i have seen large armies of both sides gathered on the field of battle and then she goes on to say say there are those in this house who will lose sons in that war and of course that did happen now when it comes like i mentioned to it that god was um punishing the south because of the high crime of slavery and he punished the north for allowing slavery to persist. Uh, I'm going to give you information on that. Um, there was a revelation. We were talking about the uh, first bull run. If you look, read in the history books, they were mentioned and you will see that the, um, the, the Northern, which were the Union soldiers, they were on the uh, offensive all day and they were just saying, okay, they're going to knock this out. But something happened in the late evening. All of a sudden, the the history books will say this chaotic confusion. But this is what actually happened because it appeared to them that 
that that the federate the the uh, Confederate states that they were uh, about to overtake them, and then the Union they just got confused. This is the account that Sister White, in her vision. Stated, She said, while both North and South suffered horrendously large casualties, at one point the North was pushing ahead when an angel descended from heaven to the battlefield and waved his hand backward. Instantly, there was confusion in the ranks. Now, needless to say that the uh, historians would say there was confusion, chaos, and she's explaining what happened. It appeared to the northern men that their troops were retreating when it was not so in reality. And a precipitate retreat commenced. This seemed wonderful to me. And then she, the angel explained to her that God had this nation in his own hand and would not suffer victories to be gained faster than he ordained. The North was not to be allowed to win a quick, decisive battle, thus ending the war abruptly, because it was to be punished for condoning slavery before the war and also for not making abolition the principal ethical issue in the war. Now, at first, Lincoln was entirely willing to permit the continuation of slavery. He did not pass. If you remember, the war started in 1861. He did not pass the Emancipation Proclamation until January 1st, 1863. So had the war stopped at that first battle of Manassas, then slavery would have just gone on because Lincoln at that time, he just wanted to preserve the Union. And if he could squash the Confederates and preserve the Union, slavery wouldn't have been an issue. God, it was a time now for the people to be freed because you can imagine they already had problems with the masses, but happened, they, they get the Adventist message and talking about not working on Saturday, they might lose a toe or something. So it, had, it was a time, it was a time, God's time for man, God's people to be emancipated so that they can worship him like he needed for them to worship him. And Can so I that's ask something? why God. Okay. That's why God. Right. Oh, well, that, that's why God did not allow that first battle to be that of Manassas to be won. When the union soldiers by all means look like they should have been the ones that, that won. Um, but when did Adventism come into play though? Like when did that start? When, because you said they broke away from the Methodists, right? And Methodists, were they worshiping on the Sunday, right? That yeah. was just this one family. There was a lot of families from different religions that yeah. came in and became Millerites. But uh, this, we were just talking about the Harmon family. The Harmon family was the fellowship from the Methodist church, but there were just other churches. And um, we're, going to, we're, we're going to get to um, the history of Adventism and the way Adventism, that's a whole nother thing than okay. from the, the, the black response. To okay. It. okay. Yeah. So, so, but Adventism that actually, you know, Sam was raised seventh day Baptist. Actually. Right. And we so talk about we actually received Sabbath message from, from seventh day Baptist. Baptist. Um, and that was in 18. That's yeah, Rachel, Rachel Oaks. Oaks. And that was in 18, 1844. For 1846, maybe somewhere between 1844 yeah. and 1846. So the Adventist church wasn't really established until 
later. Okay. But <laughs> so, uh, so you know, uh, this is basically getting you to into what the black experience was. Yeah. Uh, and, and so, yeah, you we know, can between... we can do a whole Adventist yes. history podcast uh, oh, yes. on its own. Hey, hey. But we wanted specifically like um, the black experience, experience within Adventism, and especially now with everything that's going on in the world with Black Lives Matter and with um, with this election that we have, <laughs> right. and and we just wanted to to bring that to the table right now. But we will do a future episode about Adventist history because that's that's a lot. Oh, hey, <laughs> but, hey, hey, girl, <laughs> and it, it's a beautiful relationship. Rela- relationship. Um, between the, prior to the eighteen ninety one years, there's very little from little of a black experience. You did have blacks um, taking um, espousing the Millerite movement and subsequently the keeping the Seventh Day movement. Uh, but before eighteen ninety one, there wasn't that much. Now, what happened in 1891 that made the difference? That is when Sister White gave her stirring testimony regarding uh, the work among the colored people. So mm-hmm. after that, shortly after that, her son, Essen White, uh, on the boat called the Morning Star, he came down to the Mississippi area, the Yazoo City, Mississippi, in a boat called the Morning Star. And the Morning Star was, uh, he had a little paper that formed called the Gospel Herald. Now, today we know that uh, paper as the message magazine and it's the uh, longest, uh, what, religious magazine because the first edition of Gospel Herald was in 1898. So you can see that's been a a long time. Yeah, and that's the... the Black people, <laughs> the message magazine. Mes- message magazine. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> oh. and, and so the, the, the thing about that is that uh, there was, I, I mean, it was vitriolic hatred that the people began to have against Edson White and the missionaries mm-hmm. because they were saying, the, the man was saying, you can't get a black person around here to work on Saturday and people were getting upset about that. Other churches were getting upset because they were leaving their churches and accepting Mm -hmm. the seventh day service. So like, you know, churches were still separate and segregated more, more on a more large scale back then. People in general were separated and segregated back then. And no one was taking really the gospel down South because they fe- they um feared what would happen really in the south they didn't think it would be received well but as she was saying Ellen White's son Edson he got on a boat and and came down the Mississippi and um and and it it was um so it was a trying time so you can see people began to um uh, uh, they began to espouse the Holy Spirit was working upon them and see that's why you see God had to liberate slavery 
And that's why that first battle failed because he had to liberate his liberate the people. Um, so now with that, we're going to go on and talk a little bit about the first school, because you remember the uh, Oak was was for, had their first classes in 1896. Now, what happened? Mm-hmm. There were what three. Oakwood? Oakwood University is my alma mater and <laughs> it is a black, a, a black Seventh-day Adventist HBCU college mm-hmm. and where's uh, that it's in uh, Huntsville Alabama now there were three people who went down from the general conference at that time that was given they were given eight thousand dollars to go and see Wait, about what's the general conference the general conference that's the governing body of the Seventh-day Adventist church yeah so of the world church it's, it's very similar um in structure actually to how the Methodists run their church interestingly enough so um, they run, they run everything. Well, it's a lot like a corporation. Right. Yeah. In other words, right. it's, it's, it's like a, a corporation. You have the general <laughs> conference in the general conference, which we you call corporate. The, you have the division <laughs> conferences. And then uh, we're in the North American, we did general conferences. Then we're in the North American division. And then the North of the divisions are further divided into different unions. We're in the Southern union. And then the Southern, the unions are divided into different conferences and the conference. We are the Southeastern conference. Then the Southeastern conference are further divided into the district and we're mm-hmm. in the Lakeland district. Lakeland, Kansas <laughs> no, City I thought district. we was in district three. Well, oh, where you have that district, <laughs> where you have the, those districts, we have district three and then uh, is divided into further smaller districts <laughs> yeah. such as Plant City. So we got two different type of districts. Yeah. yeah. All right. And then uh, they went and on the way to, oh, to, to Oakwood where they were going, because Sister White had mentioned about a place where they can, where they were going and then uh, where uh, that, that we need to open up a school. And uh, they chose Oakwood. Uh, they were, they went to Oakwood and they were impressed first by the 65 towering trees, hence the name Oakwood. Um, it was at that time, it was a 360 acre farm. Now, uh, Oakwood house over 1000, uh, acres, um, on that at that time was the old mansion. And that's a place where president Andrew Jackson will come and rest himself. Uh, there were nine slave cabins, an old barn, and of course, plenty of weeds and underbrush. So, so they built the school on a plantation. It was a plantation. Mm-hmm. I never uh, knew that. It was a the Peter Blow plantation. It was purchased from Mister Beasley in eighteen ninety six at eight thousand uh, dollars. On the way there, however, they stopped by Tennessee and they met uh, was able to meet with Anna Knight. Now, Anna Knight, she was a cousin to the um, governor of um, California. She was known as um, Oxaroon, uh, Oxaroon. Now, who they are are people who are one-eighth black, mm-hmm. and she was seventh-eighth European. And um, to describe her, she was still at Oakwood when I got there. She, my freshman year, she probably passed away my sophomore year. She was like in her nineties. Um, she was very fair complexion. She had, she was a brunette and she had blue eyes. So, so there was, that's where that one drop rule thing comes into play. Well, yeah, yes, yes. She was, she, she was, they, yes, she was. They called her, what, an octoroon, you Oxo- said? Oxoroon. O X O R O O N. 
you have quadroons and oxaroons and different. If you're quadroon, you have one fourth black in you. See, they got all these different names. All right. In mulatto, you half and half. You know, you got all these different names for different people, you know. Um, uh, therefore, um, and Anna Knight was the first black female. She was the first female of any denomination that went to India. She so, was a missionary. She was a missionary mm-hmm. to India. She was an educator and she was an educator. She put 50 plus years into education. Uh, but she was uh, also, she was sent to, to uh, India as the first female missionary. Um, there is on Oakwood now the Anna Knight Center for Women's Leadership. And so you'll find, you'll realize why that's named the Anna Knight Center for Women's Leadership. A lot of the, the, um, buildings on uh, Oakwood's campus, they are of significant value. They're people of significant historical value in the black community um, among black Adventism. Now she returned to the States in 1907. So from 1901 to 1907, she was a missionary in India. And there were some circumstances that caused her to go back. Well, we won't go through that in this podcast. Now she was not the first uh, missionary, however, that was sent from Florida, the first from the United States. I'm sorry, the first black missionary sent to in 1892 was Mr. James Patterson. Was Mr. James Patterson, and he was sent in 1892. And where do you think he was sent to? Jamaica. I was just about to ask him because we we had a prime minister by um, PJ Patches, and I was like, is this his father or something? <laughs> well, uh, and the interesting thing I just found out, I was doing some reading and I found out this morning, we're going to talk about a man named J.K. Humphrey later on. And Jay, I just realized that J.K. Humphrey, when he was in Jamaica, he ended up coming to the States. But when he was in Jamaica, and I did not, re- I learned, just learned this this morning reading, I said, wow. He, when he was in Jamaica, he was the one that got in contact with the general conference and said that you need to send someone here to Jamaica. And as a result of that, James Patterson was sent to Jamaica in 1892. I said, wow. And I said, (laughs) you know, I've been doing about JK Humphrey. And I said, I didn't realize he, he, he had done that. Okay. So you you learn something new every day. Yeah. And how small the world is. (laughs) Yeah, everything is connected. Right. <laughs> well, we're going to go on f- now and talk about the first ordained, black ordained minister. His name was C.M. Kenny. And um, it, the interesting thing what, about... What year was he ordained? Uh, 1889. 1889. And um, he was in the Huntsville, working in the Huntsville area when they were considering uh, the school and fortunately he was in the area and what he said he said uh the school being located so near here referring to Huntsville gives me some hope of a happy realization I think myself that the selection could hardly be bettered interesting way of saying it but in a way where he was saying that he think it was a nice selection to have mm-hmm. Oakwood there uh which was like what five miles north of Nevada, um, not Nevada, of Huntsville, because Nevada was the place where he uh, 
where, where he accepted the message. He accepted the message from J.N. Lobor. J.N. Lobor was, is the, uh, when you talk about uh, Adventist history, he was a, a, a historian, an Adventist historian. The net ain't going to hurt you. we're going to go on and talk about a man named Sam. <laughs> okay. Sam was a slave on the Peter, Peter Blow uh, plantation, you know, when they were getting ready to. And that's the place they built Oakwood. That's the place where they built Oakwood. He was a slave there. He was a slave there from 1819 to 1821. Now, everybody's heard of Sam, but you don't know him by that name. His name actually is Dred Sam Scott. Oh, that was Dred Scott? Yes. And Scott versus <laughs> Sanford, it, it precipitated in some ways that precipitated the Civil War. If you remember, Dred Scott decision was a landmark decision of the U.S. Supreme Court in which the court held that the United States Constitution was not meant to include American citizenship for black people, regardless of whether they were enslaved or free. And so the rights and privileges that the Constitution confers upon American citizens could not apply to them, referring to black Americans. And that is what they precipitated uh, the Civil War in some ways. So, um, so the Constitution wasn't meant for black people. It wasn't meant for black folks. And you know, black, they just said, uh-uh, uh-uh, uh-uh. Now, you know some interesting thing. I want you to know that all uh, the the forefathers of, you know, racism is something you're going to always have. Racism you're going to have in the Seventh-day Adventist church and all other churches until Jesus comes. But ever, you know, sometimes people more make you think that everybody feels that way, that everybody, that the general conference, everybody in the general conference feels that way, and everybody just trickling on down. That's not true. Let me tell you, let me read you some statements from some of these brilliant young uh, men that were some of the pioneers. And when I say these names, you're going to hear them. Anybody know anything about Adventist history, you're going to hear them. J.N. Andrews wrote, if all men are born free and equal, why then does this power hold three millions of human beings in the bondage of slavery? Then he goes on. Why is it that the Negro race is reduced to rank of chattels, personal and bought and sold like Bruce Beats. Um, Uriah Smith stated, says the Declaration of Independence, we hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights, that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. And yet... The same government that utters this sentiment in the very face of this declaration will hold in abject servitude over 3.2 million of human beings, rob them of those rights with which they acknowledge that all men are endowed by their creator and write out a base denial of all their professions and characters of blood. Now, John Lobor said he argued that pro-slavery clergy ought at least to apply scripture consistently. Now, this was, uh, this was good. Well, they were up there saying, well, you know, the ceremonial law was saying that uh, was sanctioned, according to them, sanctioned 
sanctioned, I'm sorry, uh, slavery and say, if they contend that it is morally right to hold slaves now because they were held in patriarchal times, because, you know, there were slavery slaves in patriarchal times. So if he's saying that's okay, he said, then it must be morally right to use them as they were used then. And he said, then everyone could go free at the Jubilee every seventh mm. year. Cause every se- <laughs> So now unless he loved his master and wanted to abide with him. So he's saying, okay. So if you want to say, uh, slavery is okay. So why is it that every seventh year, your slaves aren't going free since you right. said that the Bible. So <laughs> you, you put the Bible on one side, you, and they're doing the same thing that we always do. We'll use the Bible to justify the things that we want to do. But mm-hmm. then if it was so right, why why did God need um, to send Moses to get his people out of bondage and slavery? It's time to let my people go. Yeah. Right. And what about when he played his Moses sister when they were laughing about Keturah, the black woman? Is her name Keturah? No, Zipporah. 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 Yeah. Mm-hmm. You remember that? Was, that? that was close. but you know what i'm saying like if it's so morally right um we we all know it It, it, god never intended that but man went and did a lot of things and god suffered them to do it because he always we got realized he's a loving god we have a choice yeah, mm-hmm. but is, there, you know, we're not, always saying how they're using the Bible to justify their actions. Like, what, did we not see these scriptures then? We just rolled past it. <laughs> if you understand what I'm saying. Well, like. we rolled past the scriptures <laughs> today too, girlfriend. <laughs> so, you know, um, and, uh, you know, Sister White, she mentioned that on uh, the future, when they did a future fugitive slave law, that if you catch a fugitive, if you found a fugitive a slave, you're supposed to take them back to the master. Mm-hmm. He said she told him to disobey it. Yeah. So she like, outright told him so to disobey like it. So like the law, sometimes slaves would run away. So they're saying that if the person, if whoever found the slave, they have they had to take them back to where they came from. And Ellen, Ellen White told them not to do that. <laughs> now getting back to Oakwood, we're going to go through Oakwood. Uh, the Oakwood was known through the years by several names. Uh, it was an industrial school from 1896 to 1903. It was known as Oakwood Manual, I'm sorry, Training Center from 1904 to 1916. That was, they changed as they added more courses. And then it became Oakwood Junior College in 1917 through 1942. And it became Oakwood College from 1943 through 2007. And it became Oakwood University in 2008, of course, until the present. Now, uh, in the 1990s, they uh, located something that people have been talking about, but they actually found there was a slave cemetery that they found on the Oakwood uh, grounds. And now it's called the Oakwood Memorial Gardens. Um, and it was April 1999, I think, that it was um, that, that they had the special commemoration services for it. Uh, about 40 slaves are buried at the cemetery on the south end of the Oakwood campus. Uh, among those believed to be buried here are the, the, the wife and the two children of Dred Scott, the slave mm-hmm. who sought his freedom in the U.S. Supreme Court in 1857. 
Now, some of the names of the hall, I'm not going to go through all the names. As a matter of fact, I probably don't know that I haven't been there. And I had planned to go to the Oaks this year, but because of the pandemic, I didn't go because it's been over 20 years since I've been there. And there have been so many changes since I left. But Peterson Hall is named after Frank L. Peterson. Now, Frank L. Peterson at 14 became a convert. He was from Pensacola, Florida. As a result of the meetings by J.H. Lawrence and George E. Peters. Now, George E. Peters became the first black to be elected as the field secretary of the General Conference. And uh, he was actually from Antigua, West Indies. Now, F.L. Peterson was the first black student to graduate from the four-year college program at Pacific Union College. Now, Pacific Union College is another Seventh-day Adventist college, but it's a predominantly white college. So he was the first one to graduate with a four-year college degree from Pacific Union College. He later became an Oakwood professor, and he was the first black to be elected as a general vice president of the general conference. That's Peterson Hall. And for those of you who do not know, uh, Dr. Calvin Rock, who was one, who was the president of Oakwood when I was there, his freshman year as president was also our freshman year. So our class, I guess, should hold a special place in his heart. But he married the daughter of F.L. Peterson. So uh, he was uh, Elder Peterson's uh, son-in-law. Now, there was a strike in 1931 at Oakwood College. You had white teachers, you had a white board, and they were just all, they kept telling that, you know, they need, they want to have board members, they want to have some white. So so white people was running the college? Yes, ma'am, and they were the instructors. And so um, they they wanted to, of course, have black teachers. And um, the chairman of the board has said um, regarding uh, the strike, um, there were when they decided to have the strike, they had prayer, and it was a serious thing. The, the students did not want any type of. Uh, they didn't want to have a strike where, you know, people just be going with signs. Where people go with, you know, signs just saying and boisterous. There was no rancor or anything. It was very quiet and peaceful when they called and said, this is the day we're going to start it. It was just as peaceful. It's just when you uh, went to go somewhere, you just didn't find students. They stayed in the dorm. You didn't see them walking out or anything of that nature. And the, um, the vice chairman of the board said, cease this strike and return to your classes. Those leaders who continue to rebel and defy this council will never find a place in the labor of this denomination. Nah, let me tell you what happened. (laughs) There were five people that was expelled because they felt they were the leaders of this strike. Now, this strike happened in uh, 1931. Okay. Alan Anderson Jr. became a pastor of the black churches. H.R. Murphy became president of two conferences, South Central and Southwest Region Conferences. These were the same men that this chairman of the board says you would never find a place in the labor of this denomination. 
Samuel Rashford became a member of the Oakwood board. Ernest Mosley, he sort of lost his way, but Elder Fordham spoke to him and he felt he was giving his life over to the Lord. And, and Elder Fordham said of him, I am sure he renewed his personal relationship with our merciful and loving Savior. Now, we mentioned also before I tell you the fifth person, there was a George E. Peters became the, oh, oh I mentioned, but I did mention him. I, the one thing I wanted to mention about George Peters, he came and gave a series here in uh, the Tampa, in the Tampa area. Now, that was in the 1920s. And what was interesting about that, there were 245 baptisms. And, you know, being in the 1920s, you didn't have those large baptisms like that. So that was a sort of a record mm -hmm. for him to have baptized 245 baptisms. And that was in the Tampa Bay area. Now, the last person that I'm going to tell you about is W.W. Fordham. Now, W.W. Fordham wrote a book called Righteous Rebel. And he has a lot of interesting things about him, about the struggle. Um, of course, uh, oh, there's so much I can say about him. He ended up being the president of three conferences, Southwest Region, South Central, and the Central States. Now, um, I have some notes. On, I have some notes on some interesting things I want you to know about him. Uh, what happened... Uh, he was going to have a debate with a um, Church of Christ, you know, because they were good at having base regarding the Sabbath. And so what he did is that um, he had the people go to, he said, they always would write their questions and the, and the scriptures they're going to they're gonna do. So he had a regular church member to go and see what the questions they're going to ask and what the um, scripture would be. And so he, he came back and told uh, the pastor um, about it. And so uh, he said, he said, it might seem to some that this bit of spying was, was taken unfair advantage. However, I thought this was the only way to prevent that Goliath of debating from putting this polar David in his place. So he said, I dealt with Pastor Varner's arguments one by one, taking the scriptures in his outline and using them to support my position. He said, once again, David has slain Goliath. And so what he said, now I was young. And he said, because see, he had already been told by a person before, a young pastor before. He said, don't let him come to your church. You go, you decide where you want to have it. And so he went to he said, I'm going, he determined. So he said, uh, you know, I, I will determine where we're going to have it. And he said that he had, he made a determination to have it at his church. And he said, he stood up boldly after that and say, he ended up making an appeal to the congregation, his congregation, the church of Christ congregation. Of course they didn't stand up. He said, but the Adventists that were there, they stood up. But he said, the interesting thing you might say, well, well, what come of the case? What, what come of this anyway? What was important about it? He said years later, say he was reading something about 
He said, Church of Christ pastor becomes a Seventh-day Adventist. And then he saw his name, W.W. Fordham. So he picked it up and he started reading. What he happened is that there was a pastor named Ray Thurman. He was the pastor of the largest Church of Christ congregation in Tampa. And say he was there at that debate and say that the Holy Spirit just started working upon him. And then he started, the church members realized the church kept saying, well, we're going to just pray for you, pastor. And this make a long story short. Eventually he just gave into the Holy Spirit and he became a seventh day Adventist. So yes, something did become of that particular, that particular uh, debate. Uh, another thing that occurred, um, he, they were having a meeting at the Florida conference. Now these are some things that Fordham experienced and see a lot of the pastors experienced it, but they didn't write books telling you about what they experienced. He actually wrote a book telling about all these experiences and it'd be a nice book to read righteous rebel. It was, he was about where they had the black and white. They were participating together. They were in the Florida conference and they had this meal. And so at uh, around well, um, for, for people who don't know who listened to us and Sam, she might not know. There are two conferences in Florida of Adventists, the Southeastern conference, which is a quote regional conference. Was black people and then the Florida conference, which is, yeah, historically white. I know that much. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, because I remember when we had that conference and some persons, they were asking about that. I don't know if you remember the ladies that were asking about having, what do they call the pastors that are on campus? The campus minister? Is that? Yeah, that's, that's what the they only call thing. them? Yeah. <laughs> I don't know, but they were asking um something, you know, regarding that with white and black in um showing how segregated um everything was even with their school so mm-hmm. that part i do know <laughs> <laughs> so that was new for me learning how honestly all of this is really new because i was raised in a predominantly what black country like <laughs> Yeah. We, we we understand colorism, but I think it's since I got here, I really um, knew what racism and what segregation actually looked like. So this is quite interesting. Well, you know, C.M. <laughs> Kenny, the first one, uh, the, the first uh, ordained Adventist that we talked about that was ordained in 1889, he um, he espoused uh, the separation of the... Uh, work into conference and blacks and and what happened after they had a regional conference the work did it just expanded they found out that they didn't think that blacks really could mm-hmm. could had what it takes to run a conference not only then they not only did they run the not only did they run them well they end up getting in debt they were they were in the black they weren't in the red and they saw the work just blossom and mushroom once they did establish the the regional conferences um and on this but on that particular note when he was here uh the president of the conference at the time was lc evans and so they had the meeting and then when it came time for lunchtime uh they, they, he was getting ready to go to the lunch and then one of the members said oh uh, he said well, well where are all the white workers going because he knows all the white workers are going when the black he said oh they're going to the lunchroom but say we can't go there to eat lunch 
And so, oh, you know, because W.W. Fordham at that time, he was just coming here, visiting him to, to Florida. And he said he just wasn't used to that. So uh, he just said, he said, LC, where was he from? Well, he, he was he was in the northern states at that particular oh, time. Let me hmm. see. Where was he coming from? I don't I probably have to look that up. I think he was in the New Jersey area at that time uh, somewhere. Mm. Yeah, he had been in New Jersey and Pennsylvania, and they were trying to get him to come down to Florida to give some responsibilities in Florida. But he had been in New Jersey and Pennsylvania, so uh, he they didn't have the type of racism we had here down in the South. Uh, and so he said, "Elsie, I'm not prepared to accept." such overt racism at this joint meetings as to eat in segregation dining rooms. Say, when you came to visit me in my home in Pittsburgh, that's where he was, you should have stated that there were situations in the Florida conference in which I would not be accepted rather than to simply let it happen without previous warning. Are you aware of how humiliating an experience this is for me and for my friends in the ministry? He's the LC. I am a Southerner by birth. I have come to expect segregation racism in the world. In fact, my wife and children have already had their first search experience here in Florida. I, too, have had an encounter with racism. He said, I don't think you understand what it is really like to be black, especially in the South. And he went on, but to make a long story short, L.C., at the end of their conversation, you need to read chapter 11 of it. He ended up saying at the end, he said, he went in there, he said, no longer will blacks and white be separated. We will all eat at the same place as a result. Because he went and told them about the racism that he and his wife had, had suffered and how she was, you know, she was once again on the bus and a person wanted to come and make her and her children move. And she just said she just couldn't move and say a, a man came just tell her and say, ma'am, would you please take my seat? And said, he cordially said, so she said she went on and took his seat. But, you know, he's talked about all the type of things he had. Now, this was the one interesting thing he had. Okay. He was getting ready to make a reservation on a train ride to go somewhere. So he told them, he called them and said, say, I'm a black minister and I need to get a train ride to go somewhere. Uh, he was going to Atlanta somewhere uh, or somewhere. And so he uh, told me, they said, oh, he heard the man say on his breath said, a nigga preacher wants to ride and a pullman to Atlanta. Yeah, it was, it was Atlanta. And so uh, he came back on the phone and said, I'm sorry, sir, we don't have anything. So he hung up. So he said he immediately called back. And this time he didn't. He just said, I am Pastor W.W. Fordham, and I am requesting a roommate of our lower birth to Atlanta, Georgia. Please give me the number of the roommate and the number of the Pullman car. The ticket agent responded, Reverend Fordham, I have reserved roommate number 10A in car 12 headed for Atlanta, Georgia, just for you. All right, so it came time for him to go to get his ticket now. He said he realized he needed some help. So right. what he and a pastor, a pastor friend of his called Pastor Lee, Say they put on these white shoes and had these white shoes and say they went up there. They were tall men and they stood side by side and looked him straight in the face. And so the man said, uh, what do you want? 
He said, uh, I am Pastor W.W. Fordham. I have a reservation for Atlanta, Georgia, in roommate number, roommate number 10A, car 12. And boy, he's got white as a sheet. <laughs> and he looked at the other person next to him. And then he ended up going away. And then he came back. And then he pushed the, <laughs> the, the um, tickets to him. And so then W.W. Fordham got picked up the ticket. And then uh, when he gave him the money, he went and just snatched the money. But anyway, that was an idea. That is just some of the things that they went through. And, and you know, the book is replete with things of that nature, different um, scenarios of, of, of things they went through. Mm-hmm. Um, now, uh, our next building we're going to talk about is the James L. Moran building, because you remember we were talking about the strike of 1931. Well, as a result, in 1932, guess what happened? They had their first black president Mm -hmm. of Oakwood College. So the strike did work. Mm -hmm. Um, And his name is James L. Moran. And you'll see that building at Oakwood called Moran Hall. Now, the students built Moran Hall in exchange for tuition and miscellaneous expenses. Uh, they carved stones from the nearby mountain quarry and used it to build the walls of the building. Stage one was completed in 1940 at a cost of $30,000. It was a 540-seat assembly hall plus 10 large classrooms, four offices, and a recreation hall. Stage two, completed by 1944, added the east and west sections. The total cost of the building was roughly $72,000. Uh, which at, was at an incredible savings. And we can say to God be the glory for that. Now, an interesting thing now, in 1992, the USM president, who was Carlton P. Bird, that's the name you all probably have heard of. He's, of course, a boy of Florida What's soil. What's USM? United Student Movement. He was the president of the United St- Student Movement. Oh, still at Oakwood? Yeah. Y'all know who Carlton P. Bird is, right? Anybody ever look at Breath of Life? Well, yeah, I know who Carlton Bird is, but you yeah. don't. <laughs> well, the Breath of Life speaker, he, he, he was the USM president, and he's, he's a person of Florida soil. Uh, he led a charge for the renovation of the Moran Hall Auditorium. He was the USM president in 1992. That probably might have been his senior year. Uh, Bird pointed out that students were the ones who originally built Moran, and it was up to the current students to make an effort to bring the building up to date. Moran Hall was updated and remains a gracious landmark on the campus. Yes, oh, well, when I was there, um, that's where we had Wednesday morning chapel was always held at Moran Hall around 10 o'clock. We had Wednesday morning chapel every year. So Moran Hall is still there. I did not know that about Moran Hall. I didn't know it was built by students. It is a chip-like stone type of, it's got a unique look. <laughs> You also got the Eva B. Dykes Library. And as you know, Eva B. Dykes was the first to complete the requirements for a Ph.D. from Radcliffe. And she was also the founder of Aeolians. I don't know how many people know that, but she was the founder of the Aeolians. What's the Aeolians? The Aeolians were a group of, it was, um, I, I guess, uh, uh, an ambassadorial type of uh, singing group that would go and sing at school and then they would sing at other places. Um, 
I happen to be yours truly, happen to have been an Aeolian. And uh, they're world-renowned. They've won many, you know, they're always having these little uh, international competitions. competitions, and they often come out on top. You know, the difference is that a lot of, a lot of other people just sing, but we live the songs we sing, and we sing it from our hearts, and that, that's what basically made the difference. Uh, you have Cunningham Hall, which was named as Eugenia Cartwright. Cunningham, she was she and uh, Miss Anna Knight were close friends, and then you have the Bradley Cleveland Brooks Institute. We all know by Elder Cleveland, Bradley, and um, we, well, everybody don't know about these people. Don't oh, um, <laughs> everybody who was doing this podcast? They, yeah, they are speakers. <laughs> um, what Bradley was was the first? What was he? The first um, president of the North American Division of Seventh Adventists, and then we know Cleveland just an just an icon. He's just well, uh, yeah, he, 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 he was the one that called. I like to say he said, uh, "Sermonettes make Christianettes." <laughs> he was a preacher that everybody used to uh, try to imitate. And I remember we had a uh, our freshman year we had a little play and they had one of the persons was named Elder Bleveland. Now he was supposed to be imitating Elder Cleveland. They called him Elder Bleveland. Um, now we're gonna talk about unrest on the horizon. We're gonna talk a man about Louis Schaefer. I always pronounce his name Schaefer. I don't know how other people I thought it was Schaefer. It might be Schaefer because he is first. And I said it might be Schaefer or Schaefer. I had never heard about pronouncing. But anyway, uh, we'll say Louis Sheaf. That's what you're used to hearing. Uh, he was in the Washington, D.C. area, and he got a little bit enchanted, disenchanted with uh, the Adventists because what happened is that he was, um, he had a church, and he, it was a big church. It was an interracial church, and he found out that the whites began to leave the church, and the General Conference didn't make a, they did not make a positive steps in in avoiding the church from going from interracial to becoming a black church and so he felt that the conference didn't wasn't supporting him uh and so you know, he had so he had it like a, a integrated church and then it, it, yeah it was a yes and the black and the whites were leaving it leaving joining other churches when that was going to leave it essentially black um he sister white had mentioned some statements to him because uh she saw he was getting disheartened first of all she made statements to the church about how they were uh the the conference she said uh no matter what the gain or the loss we must act nobly and courageously in the sight of god and our savior let us as christians who accept the principle that all men black and white are free and equal adhere to this principle and not be cowards in the face of the world and in the face of the heavenly intelligences. We should treat the colored man just as respectfully as we would treat the white man. And we can now, by precept and example, win others to this course. But, but why was the white people leaving his church, though? Well, because you had, they, they were, the reasons that are given is that they, being around blacks, they felt, uh, felt intimidated that that whites other whites will um look at them differently 
and uh, they were kind of afraid that uh, of the image that they were projecting. But how did they get there in the in the first place? Then, if... well, <laughs> well, you know, this was Detroit, and they, you know, it was just a church, and he became he became DC? the pastor of the church. Yes, it was in D.C., and he became pastor of the church. And you know, a lot of churches before we had you, you got to realize before we had regional churches, uh, the blacks and white they mm-hmm. did. They they but, worship okay, together, so but this man in DC, they had other places. They had choices. See, a lot of times you didn't have choices to go to another church. In this case, they had choices, so they went to other churches instead of staying here where you had uh, a because you apparently you had a large number of blacks at this particular so church. They, but they but they chose to go to the church from the beginning. They knew black people were there, so why was it a problem? Yeah. Was it was it with him being a pastor or? I don't know whether is whether the fact that he was there was precipitated it, but he felt that the conference wasn't um they weren't standing behind standing behind him, and as a result, Sister White wrote to him because it wasn't uh his feelings as much as how he was projecting his feelings that that was affecting the, his work. She had mentioned to him after saying this to the conference about how they should make the blacks and white feel. He, she said, Elder Sheaf, Satan has been at work upon your mind. And for a long time, you have been entertaining his suggestions. Through his temptations, you have been led to take a course of action in your home that has been a great evil. It has injured you and the cause of God. But, you know, the racial discrepancy that he saw in the church is still bothering him. But what did Eventually, he do? he left and he went into the seventh day, became seventh day Baptist. But what did he do, though? What was, what was the problem um, causing the unrest or causing her to write to him? Well, it was his attitude, the best that it doesn't go into detail. Mm-hmm. I never saw anything into detail except that he had unrest. Apparently he was, he, he, now in the case of J.K. Humphrey, who we're going to talk about, we know more about what he did, but it's not a lot on Sheaf and what he actually did. It's just always saying that he didn't like what the, um, the how the, the church handled uh, blacks mm-hmm. in the work. Yeah. that uh, we couldn't, we, we were kind of like in a box. We could not move. We could not do the things that our white counterparts could do. It didn't go into specifics on what they were. I not on there might be somebody who knows specifics, but I, mm-hmm. they weren't in specifics. It's just that he just didn't like, it's always stating when I read things on, on sheaf, it's always that he did not, he was disgruntled, disenchanted with what was going on as far as the black white, relationship and it's probably from seeing things that happened like uh like cm kenny saw when cm kenny got ready to be the first person to be um ordained ordained what had happened they were trying to separate him as well as the black congregation from everybody else so i'm certain that cm not only cm kenny experienced this the ministry on down was experiencing the same thing. So I'm certain when Sheaf came, there was no difference. He saw the difference in the way uh, whites and blacks were. And the fact that he had this church, all the whites were leaving the church to go to other churches. And I guess he didn't have the Congress, the, the, the uh, general conference he felt standing by him 
on this. Now, while he felt particularly about the whites leaving his church and going up, I don't know how he felt about it, but this is what was happening. Mm-hmm. So, and um, so that, that's what happened with him. Um, there was another gentleman, however, J.K. JK Humphrey. And J.K. Humphrey got in a meeting before the general conference, and he was saying that I will not leave the church. He said there was someone who has come to me and and talked to me about possibly of leaving the church because of the disparity that they have between the blacks and the white and how they were treated and how they were separated and how one group wasn't treated the same as the other group. Uh, but he said, I will not leave the church. Now, it is believed that it was Sheaf, the one that was telling him that you might need to consider leaving the church because, see, Sheaf had left the church and he was considering, he, every, people think, nobody say for sure, but they think he possibly was the one that was discussing with J.K. Humphrey. Now, what did J.K. Humphrey do? He was in New York and he had a big following. Um, and then what happened, he decided, he saw, of course, the plight of the blacks and he decided to build this community called Utopia Park. Now, he, you know, he had good intentions because he wanted this to be a place of, of economic thriving for blacks. He, uh, he wanted to have good health care. So he had a good idea. One thing was not what he was doing, but how he was doing. He was just doing it on his own without the conference even knowing anything about it. And so uh, he went... And he but, what, but wouldn't the conference probably not have uh, endorsed it? Well, we can't say what, but he didn't help. The, he, put it this yeah, way. I know. He, he didn't, didn't situation didn't by, by just going on. And, because mm-hmm. what he did, he went and he applied to get um, uh, to get some type. Of, I, I guess it was, was permission, some type of permission they had to have to go like in gathering. Mm-hmm. And he was going to, instead of, um, and they found out he was going to use the end gathering to furnish, to, to furnish his place instead of using the end gathering, you know, like we always do, it goes to the conference. Mm -hmm. He's going to use it for that. And see, when the gentleman saw that he was going to be using the end gathering for that conference, he went and called the president of the conference and said, are you aware that this is happening? And of course the president of the conference didn't know anything Mm -hmm. about it. So he wanted to discuss, so that ended up, he ended up, J.K. Humphrey ended up um, leaving the church. And he started his own church called the United Sabbath Day Adventist Church. A lot of the people that went with him left and left and went with him, a lot of them end up returning back to the church. And um, matter of fact, one gentleman, now you, Destiny, you may remember this, this gentleman when I show you this picture. You are young, but do you remember this face? You Maybe. don't remember him? You, you remember Sister Barlow? Yeah. You remember her nephew would always come, the pastor who would always come and visit her? If you remember, he would always come and visit. This is Elder Humphrey. And, oh, that's him? Yeah, and I said, you know, when I thought about it, I was looking through here, I said, you mean to tell me all these times Elder Humphrey was here, I never got him to sign, autograph my book. <laughs> I was looking, I said, let me see what he wrote to my, in my book. And I said, hey, hey. But anyway... He was a Humphrey and he, he, uh, Ephesus, the big church in, um, um, New York, mm-hmm. uh, one lady who, who was a member and she came back to the church 
she said, well, a Humphrey bought me in and it's going to be a Humphrey that takes me out. But he always said, no, I'm not. As far as I know, I'm not related to that Humphrey. But he said, Humphrey bought me in. And so a Humphrey is going to take me out. And she, he said, the dear sister say she did die. And he was a, a funeralizer. So um, I this is uh, Elder Humphrey. And an interesting thing about Elder Humphrey, Elder, uh, I, I realized when I was reading through here that Elder Humphrey's um, one of his witnesses to his wedding was Elder M.C. Strong. Mm. And as we know, M.C. Strong is, of course, the name of given to the North Florida um, region, districts one, two, three. They call it the North or M.C. Strong Federation. And uh, that was interesting when I found out about that. Um, and we know that M.C. Strong started the church in Tampa. Mount Calvary, and also the one in Miami, Bethany. Mm. Their work down here. All right. And so um, there's another interesting thing about Sheaf. Sheaf and a man named Warnick, they were friends, and they studied at the Wayland Baptist Seminary. And um, Franklin Warnock, when he found out that Sheaf had become a Seventh-day Adventist, he said he had to go find his friend, saying, because I got to go straighten him out. And that's what he went to do when he went to to uh, to Pastor Sheaf to tell him, say, what is this I hear about you and this Seventh Day thing, Seventh Day Adventist? And so uh, when he went there, he went there and talked to him. And, and eventually, instead of um, Elder Warnick being changed by um, Sheaf, Sheaf was the one convinced him, and he began to the Holy Spirit began to work upon him. And then he became and accepted the Seventh-day Adventist message. Now, I want to tell you something. Y'all remember that during this time, it was during the time of the KKK and people were doing lynchings and all type of things of this. And I got to realize, you know, a lot of people didn't like Seventh-day Adventism. They're talking about people that don't work on, on Sabbath. They, don't, they, they, they go to church on Saturday, and they don't eat like everybody else. And, you know, you know how, like anybody else, sometimes when you're around people that are different, you, you don't feel comfortable around them. So, what, uh, so these ministers, they endured a lot of hardships. So we're going to look into a few of the Mate, interesting Sam. things of uh, hardships they've had and how God God brought them through these hardships. Do you do you know what the KKK is? No. I don't know what it is. <laughs> do you want to explain that? Well, it's just a group. It's just a radical group. They one one among many radical groups that they believe in white. They're a white supremacist group, and okay. during the time of that, they would do a lot of lynchings. They would hang you or burn right. blacks, or um, you know, they a lot of time they would go burn crosses. Next time you, you your house might be burned, or next time that you might see that they would burn you yeah. or hang you. That that was that was the KKK, and that's what these ministers had to deal with. Not only not only through the KKK, sometimes other ministers you're going to find out that they had problems. Now, one that we're going to talk about, uh, Brother Warnick. And this is going to be an interesting thing because we've, we've already mentioned one of the great grandsons of Brother Warnick. And so we're going to um, talk a little bit about him. Uh, one night as Warnick walked along a railroad track on his way to a Bible study, 
he was intercepted by a tall man who stepped out of the darkness to hand him a note. In the bright moonlight, he was able to read his message. Do not go to your study tonight. Your life is in danger. Immediately, Warnick turned back and reaching home as quickly as he could, showed the note to his wife. He placed the note in his Bible. But when he looked for it the next morning, he was surprised to find it was not there. The note had mysteriously disappeared. Warnick always believed the message was written by other than earthly hands and that the messenger himself had been one of those ministering spirits mentioned in scripture who were sent forth to minister for them who shall be heirs of salvation. The next day, he learned that a group of men had been waiting at the railroad trestle to hang him. Mm. Another instance Brother Warnick, and you know, the, the thing I see about them, I say, you see wh why they see all this, but still they didn't turn her back. They kept on with the message. And I look at that and I say, am I there? You know, will I get scared and go in my house and not come out and stop preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ? They kept on going. Now, another incident occurred. Um, when he, um, okay, yeah. The second incident was um, when he was preaching and uh, there was some rough things got together and um, uh, he was, there was, a, they were on their way to, I can't think of the place, but it was a lady named Mrs. Rogers there. She wanted him. They were all getting going, leaving Mississippi because the, the work had becoming hard. And so, Miss Rogers wanted to let him know she was white and she wanted to let him know that she, that, you know, she was on the, on the train and uh, she was safe and that her husband was okay. He was safe as well. And then, so um, when she gave the note to one of the men to give to uh, Elder Warnick, well, he looked at, no, he intercepted and he didn't ever give it to him. Well, Elder Warnick was, so then Elder Warnick never knew that Mrs. Rogers was on there. So he was there and he was reading his Bible. And so there was another gentleman that was passing by. He was a crew member and just saw him reading the Bible and he became convicted. And he told them about, uh, there were some people that he knew about the people getting ready to, at the next stop there, they were waiting for him. And so he said, uh, he looked at him and he said, Mr. Your life is in danger. I'll tell you what you ought to do. When you hear the brakes being applied for the next stop, go to the back of the car and stand on the platform on the side opposite the station. Now, when the train slows enough, jump and run for your life. Which he did do. And as he was running, he could see way, way down. And he saw a group of men waiting for him another time when God saved his life. Uh, and another time. But why were the people after him so? Because of the, the doctrine they were teaching. They were against Seventh-day Adventists and they didn't want the doctrine there. And they were coming in. You know, the people weren't working on Sabbath. And say when they accept this Sabbath and then people stop working on Sabbath, you start hitting people in their pocketbook. They're going to get mad at you. We're going to get these people out of town. We don't want you here. Kind of remind me of the apostles and all that they went yeah. through. Yes. And, yes. And, and if you realize, like, oh, we always say that a lot of times when the message is really spread, 
is through these um semblance of segregation or when they have to be running for it. What's the word? I know the word. It's like when the church is being prosecuted. That's when the message is like really out there because, hey, John is not here. John has to go over there. He's preaching to somebody over here. Peter is, Peter is over here preaching to another set over there. So they're just not in the same place because guess what? They all have to be running for their lives or something. So it it, it just always goes back to those Well, when um, you think scriptures. of the, um, the Reformation, and when they were killing all these people, instead of it squashing the the Christian faith, it just blossomed, and they yeah. just kept growing and growing and growing. So that's what and that's what happened. People, something they say there must be. So everybody's looking for something that gives you a life, make it worth your living. Because if you don't have anything to die for, you really don't have anything to live for. Mm-hmm. So when you see these people, they are dying for these things. They say they got something that I want. It's and worth so that's something. what yeah. that's what happens. Um, there was another incident with Elder Warnick, uh, where, um, you know, Elder Warnick, he was very fair skinned and his wife. Now she was a brown hue is she's described as being as a brown hue, but her father was a plantation owner and her mother was a slave. So she was biracial. And so what happened, they were, uh, Elder Warnick was preaching. And when he was preaching, there was a brother dancer who was on the podium. And so you could see in the window, there was um, some whites looking through the window. They were just looking through the window. And after a while, they beckoned and brother dancer went there. And so the man said, now, is is there a black man here who's married to a white woman? And Mr. Dancer said, no, sir, there's nobody here like that. No, sir. And so uh, what probably happened is that they probably got it mixed up because Warnick, Warnick looking probably looked white because he was I, he was of the, the Simons or descendants from him. And he was very fair. And his wife, being a brown hue, Probably they got it confused. It probably was more like they said a white man is married to a black woman instead of being the way they said a black man was married to a white woman. So they didn't they weren't going to fuss too much if the white man had the black woman. If that is the black man had the white woman, then that was going to be a problem. Now, I was just saying Elder Warnick, he had um, Elder Warnick end up having children and and one of his descendants is a great grandson. Now I mentioned his great grandson and he is Doug Simons. I mentioned, you know, about Doug Simons, about the pastor. Our pastor was one of his great grandsons, Mm -hmm. pastor Doug Simons. Doug Simons was the one that took me my senior year to uh, Oakwood for college days. And you know, the Simon, if you know the Simons, they are all very fair skinned people. And I went to school with Carol Ann Simons and she was blonde. I don't know what color I have. Green, blue, hazel or something. She had this blonde hair and, and, and she was like, you know, and she, she was a Simons, you know, she was, a, she was, she was, um, uh, one of the, uh, a great, great grandchildren, I guess, of the Warnicks. So, um, these people, when you look at, they didn't have such an easy life like we, like they were paving the way for us. And uh, so, you know, my hat just goes off to them. And let me see. um, Let pause for a minute. I get to go to the bathroom. Okay.
Because all of them is the same reason because of the way uh, but blacks, but you know, a lot of blacks today say, well, why are you being a Christian, Christian organization? Uh, why are you separated? Well, the thing mm-hmm. about it is that you have a choice. Nobody in, in our two conferences. Hey, we have here now, first of all, the reason the regional regional conferences exist is that uh, because the work you got to realize, like I was, like I've been stating the people uh, the blacks were better equipped to give the message to the blacks because whites, the whites themselves, the other whites were getting upset with them by teaching the blacks all these things. So it was better just to give the blacks the opportunity to teach each other rather than because the whites were begetting and say that was what that was doing. That was impeding the growth of the work instead of helping. It was impeding the growth of the work. And so when they did have the regional conferences, what they've been saying was true. The, the work blossomed, the finances were there. They, you know, they got shortly, they got out of debt. So what they were saying was true. The conference, the blacks were saying, we need to have some leadership roles. And mm-hmm. they got, when they got, they, they always felt they couldn't have leadership role. But when they got the conferences, they said, we need to have conferences so where we can have our own leadership role. Because you can realize whites weren't going to mm-hmm. give up their leadership role to blacks. So blacks said, let's have our conferences so we can have a leadership role so we can guide the people along. And that's what, that's what happened. And they found out that what they've been telling them all this, this time was true. The work did blossom. Yeah. Well, that's kind of where I wanted to go with it, with, um, with bringing it to the present day, you know, people calling for the togetherness of the conferences. And and and, they won't be, they've been separated too long to get them together because you are going to have the leadership issue. Mm -hmm. Man is man. Uh, Who's going to be conference president? (laughs) That's the first thing you're going to have happen. Okay. You bring them together. Well, how are you going to handle this thing about Who's going to be the conference president? Black or a what white are we going man. to name? Yes. Yes. <laughs> You're going to have those problems. And we don't have time for that. Mm-hmm. Just that thing. Because right now, you have the choice. Mm-hmm. You can go. You can decide. You can you go wherever. Go, you can go to go to that. That's the one thing about God. That's the one thing great about God. He gives you choices. So you have choice. And I don't know what the big issue there is that we need to have everybody together. We are all together. As far as I'm concerned, we all are, we, we're all preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ. And you just decide which conference you would like to go to. So what's the issue? We all got the same goal. Because I guess because in name, we're still segregated. And I've heard people um, bringing that up um, about the church and everything with some people joining the church. Like, um, and I forgot where it was, but there was about an evangelistic series that was happening. Um, a couple years ago and these two girls had came and they were black and it was one of the white churches and they were like you know the message is good and everything but but well we're all the people who look like us to (laughs) to one of the people um and that brought about a conversation of you know um how that question that you asked what how can you be christian and you're still separate but the way i see it across all denominations is still separate they just don't have it 
as organizationally like we do like they just have separate denominations like within the baptist there's a southern baptist which is historically white and but mm-hmm. then there's people like missionary baptist or or primitive baptist or whoever and they're black so i mean we still under the umbrella of adventism in our denomination but just i guess a little separate pockets inside the same umbrella but they got whole whole different denominations. Well, we well the bottom line, everybody's here. Like I said, that they're 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 preaching the word of God. So there's not separation. You know, it's just like in the school system, uh, integration wasn't really what we needed, wanted. We just wanted to separate, but we wanted to have equal education. And I guess the only way they feel they can have equal education, because I guess it was the same issue. You weren't going to give the black schools what needed to be what they needed to thrive and and be equal to the other schools. So mm-hmm. they saw that that integration was the thing. Um, but what was happening is that they just what was wanted is they we didn't have to integrate. We just wanted to have um, the schools that we did have. We wanted them to have the same things like over here had. And that's what is always, and that's what that's what always wanted. Mm-hmm. That's what all these that's what all these ministers wanted. They wanted to make certain we have what we have is the same thing that you just have over here, mm-hmm. and everybody has the opportunity to make the choice of where they where they're going. And it doesn't mean that you don't love one another. But one thing, like I'm going to tell tell you, is that there's going to be segregation. There's going to be segregation until in the church and in the world, you're going to have segregation until the Lord comes. Mm-hmm. Uh, the other thing I, I just wanted to mention that uh, there were two other items I wanted to mention that in 1907, the first Florida camp meeting was held here in Plant City really? uh, with blacks attending. Yes, the first camp mm-hmm. meeting in Florida was held here in Plant City. Oh, what's camp meeting for those who are listening and don't know? <laughs> well, Sam probably know, but Sam knows everybody... what camp meeting. She was but... at camp meeting. When was that last January? We went to camp meeting. She knows camp meeting. But everybody who <laughs> listened don't know. <laughs> It, well, you know, most churches have camp meeting. Camp meeting is something most most churches know about. Camp meeting is everybody comes together. But we have uh, some camp. Some people have their camp meetings uh, in buildings, in you know, just a building like for a weekend. We have our camp meeting, and we living in little tents and little cabins and stuff. And we come to the main service, so that's what our camp meeting is all about. Now, I want to mention before Rosa Parks in 1955, there was Irene Morgan in 1944. Uh, Irene Morgan was an Adventist who refused to change her seats on a bus on July 16th in 1944. Uh, what happened is that she was going uh, on an interstate bus. She was going from Virginia to Maryland and uh, someone asked her and she was sitting in the area where blacks are supposed to sit. Well, there was a couple came in there, and so they asked her to get up and give them her seat. And she said, well, the laws of Virginia does not apply here because uh, this is an interstate bus, so I don't have to give up my seat to mm-hmm. these people. But And so it ended up going all the way up to the Supreme Court, and the Supreme Court sided with her, and the, it forever silenced. Uh, what year was that? Uh, 1944. Mm-hmm. So, so, you know, they talk about Rosa uh, mm-hmm. Parks. Well, she stopped. Her, the one, the the Montgomery um, boycott, bus boycott, what it stopped was interstate, intrastate um, 
uh, discrimination. So state yeah. of Alabama. Yeah, but the other one was interstate between bus going buses from state to state, and that's what um, Miss I Sister Irene Morgan. Um, she stopped. They, they got she got it on record that interstate busing um, segregation is illegal. Um, so that's that's her. That was in 1944, whereas Rosa Parks wasn't until 1955. Now, the interesting thing that the person that took her to Supreme Court was Thurgood Marshall. Mm -hmm. As we know, Thurgood Marshall became the first uh, black Supreme Court justice. All right. And last but not least, we're going to talk about the oldest church was uh, with blacks adjoining was at the um, the Edgefield Junction, Tennessee church. Now, one of the founding members of that church was uh, Jeannie Allison. Jeannie Allison was, as far as we know, the first black woman to join the Seventh-day Adventist church. And uh, she had two, she had some children, but particularly she had a girl and her son was named Thomas and she had a daughter and her daughter was named Florence. Now, Florence had a voice that they said Marion Anderson said about that, the remark that she would buy her voice if she could. And that was Marion Anderson said that about her daughter. And then she had a son named Allison, who was a good baritone singer. He sang with the fixed Jubilee singers. And so um, they had left the church. They were going into the glitter of entertainment. And Sister White often would visit with Sister Jenny. And she, Sister Jenny asked Sister White, what about her? She was just praying for her children. And Sister White told her, I want you to go to Chicago. Her son was in Chicago. Get your son and bring, her, bring him back, which she did do, the son and the wife. She brought them back. But S Sister Jenny, regarding her daughter, she was always trying to child her daughter to join the church. See, after the whatever, we don't know what Sister White told her about her daughter, but say she never tried to get her daughter, talk to her daughter about coming back to Christ. And say she never told anybody what Sister White told her, but Florence, her name was Brawley, say she uh, say she she died and never joined the church. So we don't know what all, but she went and told him to get the son and bring him back. He came home. He became a minister and of uh, the gospel. And here's some interesting things that happened to him. The ministers, other ministers, black ministers, didn't want him around because he was getting these people to come out of their churches. And, you know, you get them to come out mm -hmm. of your, their churches. They got upset. So what happened? The ministers was up there casting lots as who's going to be the one that, that, that knocks him out. Now, ministers, I'm saying, have mercy, Lord. So then the minister that the lot fell on, he was just waiting nervously because there was this little shaded area when they see him walking home and nobody be around and nobody be around to see what's going on. So there he was. He was walking and the man was just nervously. He had a woodman's axe ready to hack him and hack him down. <laughs> Now, but Alice, but as Allison passed, the clergyman froze to the spot. He was unable to move a leg or anything. And so the next day he just had to go. He went to Allison's house and he confessed what he was going to plan to do. And he said, now tell me, Reverend, who were those men with you last night? Uh, 
sir, there was nobody with me as I came home last night. He said, oh, yeah. Oh, yes, there was. <laughs> there certainly was some men with you because I seen them myself and I heard them talking. You was right in the middle and they was talking about your sermon. He's all oh, my friend. You're badly mistaken. There was no one with me, not a soul. I'm sure of that. I know what I'm talking about. I watched them men with you and down the road a piece. I didn't see them no more. Another time. That is the God we serve. So, you know, what I look at as we get as we get close to the Lord's coming, we don't need to fret man because God said, I have not given you the spirit of fear, mm -hmm. but of love, a sound and a sound mind. So that's what and power. That's what God has given us. So we need to hold on to that. And it's nice to go over these stories and know these stories of how God protected his people, how he miraculously is protecting his people. And he'll do the same thing for us. Amen. Mm -hmm. Wow. <laughs> that was good. Yeah, that was a lot. I don't think <laughs> I have any. I don't think I want to add anything to that piece you just said right there. Nothing. Thank you. For we need to us. just collect your offering now. And <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that was good. Well, you got to come back again yes. to, oh. to finish history. Oh, oh to give us yes, the whole picture. There, we, there. we heard about the black experiences today, but there's a lot more. There is so much. And it's such a rich heritage of which we, we uh, are. And, uh, when you read the Bible and you read about what the remnant and how the remnant is going to come and you'll say, yeah, things happen just as God said. Mm -hmm. So with that, thank you for listening and joining us today. If you have any questions for us or any questions about what was said today, we tell us and we can address it in a future episode. When you come back. And also, I'd like to add, this is probably going to be our last regular episode for 2020. So um, we'll catch y'all after finals and after this. <laughs> right. <laughs> after after this, we made it through after this, this semester. semester. <laughs> um, and hopefully the election isn't too bad. This week coming up, with this is what, October 31st today and we hope you have a good new year but you'll probably hear from us again before new year but just in case this is it so have a good holiday have a good rest of the semester wherever you are we hope that you will take these experiences and and kind of sit with them and realize that the things that god did for these people he can do for you today, tomorrow, whenever, and he is still the same God that he was for those people. So have heart, be encouraged, no matter the outcome of anything that happens in our world, in our personal lives, and politically, that God is ultimately in control and he will keep his people. So thank you.